I know what I want to teach on this morning, but I don't know how to get there. Um, tell you what, let's start in Luke chapter 4. There are certain things that, there are a few things that when I come around to getting direction on what to teach or what to minister, there are a couple of things that my heart just leaps about. I don't know if you understand what I mean by that, and I don't know that I can describe it any better than that. But there are certain things that my heart just jumps for, and um, I like that. So I have a tendency to teach that a lot. I have to be careful. But, um, it's kind of like the, the old story that, uh, that they told about the guy that was fishing. Two guys are fishing together. One guy's in the back of the boat catching a lot of fish. The other guy's up front, doesn't catch anything. And so finally the guy in the back of the boat says, well, what are you using for bait? He said, donuts. He said, well, fish don't like donuts. And he, and he said, yeah, I know, but I do. <laughs> so sometimes I feel kind of like that when I'm teaching. <laughs> I'm teaching what I like, but I'm not sure it's the, the thing that everybody else likes. But that's the way it's going to be this morning, so you're stuck. <laughs> Luke chapter 4, verse 14 tells us about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It says, and he returned in the power of the Spirit. I want you to get that phrase. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all, all the region round about, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Now, the previous chapter, chapter 3, in um, verse 20, 21, 22, somewhere around there, uh, Luke gives us an account by the Holy Ghost of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, who we know of as John the Baptist. And the Bible says that there was a voice from heaven that cried out and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then it tells us that the, the presence of the Holy Ghost descended on him in bodily shape as a, uh, as a dove. Now, I don't think that means he looks like a bird. I think that just means something came from heaven like a bird would fly down and land on the ground. But when it says that he descended in bodily shape as a, as a, a dove, that simply means that he appeared in physical form. The people around are not seeing a vision. They're not even seeing into the spirit realm. The Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape. That means he appeared physically in that form and landed on Jesus and abode there, stayed there. Then the Bible tells us about how Jesus, the first part of this chapter 4, tells us about how Jesus uh, was led of God into the wilderness to prepare for the beginning of his ministry. It says he was there for 40 days and he fasted all, uh, all of that time for the entirety of that time. And then after his fasting, the devil shows up and tempts him, gives him the three great temptations, and Jesus overcomes each one the same exact way by quoting the Word of God. Well, if quoting the Word of God is good for Jesus to defeat the devil, it ought to be good for us too, don't you think? I believe the reason that, that story is in there, the account of the, uh, Jesus' temptation is included in the Scriptures, is to show us how we can defeat the devil just like he did. 
It's unfortunate in my thinking that the King James renders it in, in uh, this form. It says something like he was led, uh, led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. That's really not what the language says. He was led by the Holy Ghost into the wilderness where he was tempted of the devil. But God didn't take him out there to be tempted. Jesus spent 40 days doing a lot more important things than talking to the devil. He spent 40 days communing with his father, separating himself for the ministry that God had for him to do, which was, of course, the three years of miracles and healings and so forth. And so following that, following the temptation of the devil, following Jesus' spirit-led fast, that brings us to verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and they went out of fame of him through all, all the region round about, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. I grew up in a Baptist church, Southern Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Wonderful people. And they loved God with all of their hearts. They were sincere in their desire to please God and walk uh, according to the word and walk in holiness and defeat sin and all that other good stuff. But I was taught what I think is common in many churches, many denominations. I was taught that Jesus did the miracles that he did because he was the son of God. And that can't be right. I didn't have the wisdom to know why it couldn't be right at the time. I didn't know anything one way or the other about whether it was right or not. But the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 starts with, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then verse 8, it tells us some uh, different things about Jesus and coming to the earth and so forth. But verse 8 is really significant. And I believe it's one of the hinges that our Christian foundation swings upon I believe it's one of the foundation stones that the believers walk with God should be based upon it says that Jesus made himself King James says Jesus made himself of no reputation that's Philippians 2 8 Jesus made himself of no reputation that's really a poor translation because if you look up those, those words, those Greek words talking about reputation, it simply says and literally means he emptied himself to come to the earth and be born as a man. He emptied himself. Well, what does that mean? Most other translations, not all, but most other translations translate it something uh, in, in some form, some way, as emptied himself. The Bible is trying to tell us, the Holy Ghost wants us to know that Jesus was not operating here on the earth as the Son of God. He was the Son of God. But that wasn't the reason that he did the miracles and the signs and the wonders and the healings. This verse of Scripture, these verses of Scripture bear that out because it indicates to us that Jesus returned after his baptism by John in the Jordan River, after the Holy Ghost descends upon him in bodily shape as a dove, after he's in the wilderness for 40 days preparing for his ministry, after the devil comes and tempts him and Jesus defeats him by speaking and quoting the word. After those things, it says in verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. That has to be something new. 
That has to be something new. There's got to be something that's happened, that something has taken place that changed the way that Jesus was living, that changed in Jesus' purpose concerning and regarding his ministry. It has to mean something new. Otherwise, why would it tell us anything about Jesus in the power of the Spirit? See, if Jesus was operating as the Son of God, then he would have been able to do miracles any time after he was born here on the earth. His earthly life, his young life, would be filled with stories of miracles that he did. But it's not. Jesus did not begin his miracle ministry until after the Holy Ghost came upon him. Peter bears this out in Acts chapter 10 when he was preaching in Cornelius' house. One of the first examples we have of the gospel going to the Gentiles. Peter said in Acts 10.38, he said, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. How do you anoint God? Notice he says, Peter said that God anointed Jesus. If Jesus had all the heavenly power and glory here on the earth that he had before he came to the earth, then how do you anoint that? He's co-equal with the Father. He's co-eternal with the Father. He has just as much power in the heavenlies as God the Father does. So if Jesus is coming to the earth to operate as the Son of God with unlimited power because of who he is, how do you anoint that? Do you see the point I'm trying to make? Jesus could not have operated here on the earth as the Son of God. Now, I mean that concerning his power. Certainly, he was the Son of God. He was the character and the nature of God. He was the life of God, born miraculously of a virgin. But that's not the source of his miracles. He says the same thing. It tells us a little bit uh, further into chapter 4, verse 16, it says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now everybody knows that the place that Jesus has just read from in the scripture it corresponds to Isaiah 61 for us in, our, uh, in, the King James, uh, in, in the English Bible. When Jesus says these things, he's reading scriptures that everybody knows is about the Messiah. Everybody knows. And notice he says that, speaking of him, he's got to be talking about himself. He says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He's saying of himself, I'm anointed by the Holy Ghost. And then he tells what he's anointed to do. Heal the brokenhearted and 
preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, etc. Jesus is saying, I've been anointed to do these things. Now, I've heard it said, heard it taught. I don't know it to be true. But just as a side note for you to consider, I've been told that at that point in time in Israel, in every synagogue, there was a special seat that was set aside for the Messiah. This would correspond to or be similar to uh, the Elijah place at the Passover. How there was always a place set for the, the Messiah, or set for Elijah rather, who would herald the coming of the Messiah. Well, in similar fashion, I've been told that it was that way in the synagogues where the seat for the Messiah was, uh, was set apart. And when it says Jesus finished reading from Isaiah 61, he gives the scrolls back to the, to the uh, ruler of the synagogue. And then he goes sit down in the Messiah's seat. Now that sounds great. I don't know if that's accurate or not. But assume for a moment, just consider for a moment if that's the way that it happened. The questions that are raised afterwards are something like, who does this guy think he is? Well, if he's sitting in the Messiah's seat, it's pretty obvious who he thinks he is. So Jesus says, the Spirit is upon me because he's anointed me. In other words, he's saying the same thing that Luke just recorded. I've returned in the power of the Spirit. Yeah, you knew me growing up. But there's more to me now than that. There's more to me than what you knew and experienced when I lived among you. Now I'm anointed of the Holy Ghost to do signs and wonders and miracles. Since that's true, what does that mean? That means that Jesus was operating on the earth not as the Son of God, but as God's Son who emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory and is now anointed of the Holy Ghost. Turn with me over to uh, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we'll begin in verse 27. I know you thought I was going to verse 22. A lot of times... We assume that the only thing in Mark chapter 11 is verse 22 through 24. But notice beginning in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, there came to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And they said unto him, by what authority doest thou these things? Who gave you this authority? How are you able to do the things that you're doing? And Jesus answered and said... I will also ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's this question to them. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. That created a real dilemma for them. It explains why. They reasoned with themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? So they knew that they hadn't accepted the message of John the Baptist and weren't following it in any form whatsoever. Then they said in verse 32, but if we say of men, then they feared the people for all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said unto Jesus, we can't tell. 
And Jesus answering said unto them, Neither do I tell you what authority I do these things. Now let's talk about John for, John's um, ministry for a minute. Their questions or dilemma that they found themselves in is that they weren't able or weren't willing to say it was from heaven because then that would expose their lack of belief in what God was telling them, what God was speaking to the people. But then they said, if we say that it was just of men, the people are going to get mad at us because they believed that he was a prophet. Now, what does that mean? Here's what I want you to focus on for just a second. What does that mean? That means that the people recognized there was a divine element to John's ministry. That means the people recognized that there was something supernatural. There was a divine touch in some way, some fashion upon John's ministry. And it was so much, they were convinced so much of that, that they would have revolted against the, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, if they had not accepted that or if they had spoken against it. So what does that mean? That means John had to be anointed of the Holy Ghost to do what he was doing. There was the presence of the Holy Ghost in some fashion on John's ministry. Well, then what's the answer to Jesus' question? Where did the, his baptism come from? Where did his ministry and message come from? In Acts chapter 19, when uh, Paul is preaching on his missionary journeys, the Bible tells us that he comes to a certain place. It's the city of Ephesus. And he finds people going about their daily routines. He goes down to the river where the women are washing clothes and doing some of the stuff they need to do. And, John, and uh, Paul sees the character and the nature of these people, and he assumes they're born again. He assumes by their behavior, interaction with him and with others, I guess, that there's something godly about these people. So he asked him a question. He said, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? In other words, he's really asking, are you spirit-filled or just born again? And they said, we've never heard of the Holy Ghost. What are you talking about? And then he backs up a little bit and says, wait a minute, aren't you saved? That's what it means when he says, under whose baptism are you baptized with? And they said, John, John the Baptist, the same one Jesus is asking about in Mark chapter 11. They said, we are baptized under John. And then Paul answers about what John's ministry was about. Paul says, John truly baptized with the baptism of repentance. But there's one coming after me, John said, that is the Messiah and that will baptize you with fire, with Holy Ghost and fire. Well, what is the baptism of repentance? Does God repent? Does God need forgiveness? The baptism of repentance has to be from man. It has to be man's baptism, not God's. And Paul goes on further, I just mentioned it before, in Acts chapter 19, and says, Remember John preached that there was one coming after him that he wasn't worthy to tie his shoes and that he would baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. The Holy Ghost and fire baptism is the baptism from heaven, but not John's. John's was the baptism of repentance, which started from man. It's man toward God. Repentance is always man toward God, not God toward men. But the baptism of the Holy Ghost is not man toward God. 
It's God toward man. Can you see the difference? So putting all those things together, what's the answer to Jesus' question about John? What was it about John and his ministry and the things that God gave him to carry out? What would be the answer? Is it of man? Is it of God? What is it? Well, it's of man, but it has a divine element, which means he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. Now, why is Jesus asking them this question? Because the answer to their questions about him is the same answer as John's, the question about John's ministry. Jesus was a man anointed of the Holy Ghost to do the work that he did. Jesus, time and time and time again, said, the works that I do are not of myself. I'm only doing what I see my Father do and what he directs me to do. So Jesus testimony throughout his earthly ministry his three years of ministry here on the earth Jesus testimony was very simply I'm just a man doesn't mean he's not the son of God it means he's not operating as the son of God I'm just a man just like you anointed of the Holy Ghost it's the Holy Ghost in me and on me that's doing the works turn with me over to John chapter 2 I trust you remember what Genesis 1.26 says. It's telling us that at the end of God's creative works, one of the last things that he made was man. Genesis 1.26, and God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the earth. Let him have authority over the earth and over all the works of our hands. So it tells us that God originally intended for man to have authority on the earth. For man to be the ruler of the earth, we could use a Bible term and even say that man was designed to be the God of this earth. That doesn't mean with the same status as the creator of the universe. It just simply means he's the one with authority. He's the one with dominion. He told Adam when he made him, all this is made for you. Dress it and keep, dress and keep the garden. Garden protected. Guard and protect the garden. What you say goes. God gave man authority. Well, if God gave man authority in the beginning and God never changes, then God wants man to have authority throughout the existence of this earth. What was God's will then is God's will now because he doesn't change. I know we say this a lot. I know you think I've heard these things before. And I say to that, good. Because it's important that we hear it again and again and again. It's important that we get into the truth of who we are in Christ Jesus and what God's plan and purpose for us is so that we can walk in it. Have you found John 2 yet? It tells about the the wedding in Cana. The third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And his mother said unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now if Jesus was, since Jesus was born of a virgin, that means he bypassed through his 
miraculous birth. He bypassed the sin of mankind that was passed from Adam onward. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Wherefore as by one man, talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden, Wherefore as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, and so death, spiritual death, passed upon all men. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, if he had not been born of a virgin, then he would have been subject to the same spiritual death that passes to all flesh, all mankind. But the virgin birth was such an important issue. I know that some people in the church say, what's the big deal? Folks, the virgin birth was everything. If Jesus is not born of a virgin, then he's not born separate from sin, the sin and spiritual death that passed from Adam onward. If Jesus had not been separated from that or outside of that realm of humanity, he couldn't have been the spotless lamb to offer his, himself as a sacrifice for us. He would have been tainted by Adam's sin. But Jesus came to restore all things. Think about that for a minute. He came to restore all things. Restore what? Man's authority here on the earth. Because God hadn't changed from the beginning. He still wants man to have authority on the earth. He set it up for man to have authority on the earth. Man does have authority on the earth. And it's just the devil that tries to keep us from walking in it. But I want you to see something about Jesus in the earliest days of his ministry. Really, John says this is the first miracle that he wrought. So we've got to put that somewhere between Luke chapter 14, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, where he returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee, before, in between verse 18, where he goes to Nazareth and says, I'm anointed of the Holy Ghost. If John's account is accurate, and remember, he's the last gospel writer. He wrote uh, his gospel some 60, 65 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. We don't know exactly how the other gospel uh, accounts fit in as far as the timeline is concerned, but John's gospel is at least 40 years old or, or written 40 years after the other gospel accounts. And it seems to me that writing at such a late date, John seems to fill in the blanks on a lot of different things. This is one thing that's very important in my estimation that he's giving us a record of and an account of that the others don't. He's the only one that tells us about the, the wedding at Cana. He's the only one that tells us that the miracle took place. He says it was the first miracle. So that means Jesus has not done any other miracles. He hasn't healed anybody yet. We didn't read as far in Luke chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 18, where Jesus starts talking about being anointed. We didn't read further down a few verses where Jesus says to them, I know what you're thinking. You've heard the things done in Capernaum meaning he had miracles and signs and wonders in Capernaum before he got to Nazareth. And he said, I know what you're thinking. Do the same things that you did there. Well, this John chapter 2, marriage at Cana, has to be before then. And Jesus' response to his mother is really kind of hard to explain. It's almost as if, and it may be, that Jesus didn't go to that wedding in Cana expecting to do a miracle. He may not know at that point in time, at the moment that he speaks to his mother and says, woman, what do I have to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. Apparently, it looks to me, you judge it for yourself. 
But it looks to me like he doesn't yet have direction from God to do anything. He's just assuming that he's going to the wedding because it's probably a relative of his. It would make sense that that would be the reason why his mother is in charge of the wine or trying to fix the problems or whatever. She may be the wedding coordinator in this situation. And if that's the case, it would be because it was a family member. That's how things worked. So this may be a family member of Jesus that he's attending the wedding at. And it's, it seems like that when she comes to Jesus to try to fix the problem, Jesus doesn't know that he's supposed to do anything yet. But notice what she says even after he says, this is not my business. Notice what she says. She tells the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Why would she say that? Why would she say that? She tells the servants, his words count. Whatever he says to you, do it. Let's back up and think for a minute about Jesus' early life. The only thing we really know about him is at age 12, they go to, to Jerusalem to present themselves before the temple. He stays behind. You remember three days later, they show up looking for him, trying to find out where he is. He's sitting in the temple asking questions of the rabbis that they can't answer and answering the questions of the rabbis that are asked of him. We don't know much more about his earthly life than that. We know he grew up in Nazareth, but we don't know anything other than he was in business with his father as a carpenter, which probably means house builder. Isn't that interesting? Jesus was by trade a house builder, just as he said he'd build his house, the church. But we don't know anything else about Jesus' earthly life, early life. We don't know anything about it. But something about his mother's experience with Jesus causes her to tell the strangers at the wedding, I mean the, the servants at the wedding, whatever he says, do it. Why would she say that if she was not accustomed to his words fixing problems? Can you think of any other reason why she would say what she said to the servants? I can't. She's telling the servants, even after it seems like he's rebuked her and said, I don't have anything to do with this. She turns to the servants and says, whatever he says, do it. His words work. If Jesus walked as a sinless man, even before his ministry, and of course we know he did, he had to. Jesus had never sinned in his life. He was about 30 years old, the Bible tells us, when he began doing miracles after he was baptized by the, uh, John in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost descended on him. But he was still the son of God. He still was the same person at age 25. And so of himself, he would be able to do the same things at age 25 that he was able to do at age 30. What's the difference? Why was he not doing miracles at age 25 and he started doing them at age 30? The difference is the Holy Ghost baptism. 
That's the only difference we can find. But prior to that, Jesus would have lived perfectly according to the law of Moses. He is perfectly fulfilling man's responsibility in Abraham's covenant with God. Think about what that means. That means he could have been the richest businessman on the face of the earth. I'm not saying he went that way, but he could have. The blessing of God would have been on him in every form, in every respect. It's not only possible, but likely that there were times in his life that he was attacked with sickness and disease. The Bible says he was tempted at all points like as we are, yet without sin. So I don't doubt for a minute that there were situations, if not miraculous, at least supernatural, that happened in Jesus' personal life, in his family life, that we don't have record of. Why else would his mother say something about his words? Why else would his mother tell the servants, his words matter even in impossible situations? What are his words going to have anything to do with being out of wine? What do you think he's going to tell them? Go run to the store? If running to the store is the issue, his mom would have taken care of that. She would have sent the servants already. So what is she expecting? I don't know. But she knows his words are the key. So the Holy Ghost coming on Jesus didn't make him a better person. He was sinless before and sinless after. The Holy Ghost just provided him power to do the things that God had for him to do. Let me say it this way. See if you can agree with this. Jesus could have easily worked supernatural things according to the law of Moses in his personal life and in his family life without the anointing of the Holy Ghost, just by simply keeping the word, keeping the commandments that God had given through Moses. Well, then what was the anointing of the Holy Ghost for? To help other people. For God to help heal and deliver others. Jesus didn't need the the baptism of the Holy Ghost or the anointing of the Holy Ghost for himself. It's for others. Can you see that? So what does that mean? That means Jesus' ministry, his life and his ministry, was just as he said, just as he indicated by asking the question in Mark chapter 11 about John's ministry. He was a man who was once the son of God in heaven with all of his heavenly power and glory, who laid those things aside, came to the earth to be born of a virgin, bypassing the spiritual death that passed upon all men who God had a plan for, who fulfilled that plan through the anointing of the Holy Ghost that came upon him. Turn with me over to John chapter 5. Jesus is talking about himself. And his relationship with the Father, 
Notice in verse 26, it says, For the, as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. He's saying, my life is God's life. Now, I want to be careful how I say this, because Jesus did not pull away from the thought or the idea that he was the Son of God. He said on several occasions, my Father and I are one. That's the equivalent of claiming to be the Son of God. But of the 65 times that Jesus identifies himself, 60 of them say that he calls himself the Son of Man. Five of them says that he called himself the Son of God, and three of those five are in the same situation, the same circumstance or event. So Jesus did not go around claiming to be the Son of God. He did claim to be one with his Father, which as far as the Jews were concerned is the same thing. That's blasphemy, they said, because nobody can be the Son of God here on the earth. Well, Jesus was. They didn't understand how he could be. You may remember, we didn't read as far in uh, Luke chapter 4 to see it. But you may remember one of their complaints, one of the complaints of the people about Jesus' claim being the Messiah is that we know him. We know his parents. We know his father. We know his mother. We know his brothers. So the virgin birth was not widely known, as you may well understand. Who's going to believe Mary saying, the Holy Ghost overshadowed me? It wasn't... I didn't hook up with anybody. So that certainly wasn't something that was widely publicized. But Mary knew. So when Jesus assumes the position of acting as his father, it's always for the benefit of the people, not to make a name for himself. Again, verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so also has he given to the Son to have life in himself. Verse 27, and has given him authority to execute judgment. Authority to execute judgment also. Why? Because he's the Son of God? No, because he's the Son of Man. You know what Jesus is telling us? And he's telling them at the same time. Jesus was saying, my authority is because I'm born of a woman, not because God's my father. Why would that be? Because God gave authority to man in Genesis chapter 1. If God gave authority to man, that means God doesn't have authority over the earth. Doesn't mean he can't work with man. He does work with man, but man was given authority and God never took it back. So Jesus is saying, the authority that I have here on the earth is because I'm human, not because I'm divine. The authority that I have on the earth is because I was born of a woman. John chapter 10, Jesus goes into great detail to talk about coming into the earth in a legal manner by being born of a woman. He contrasts that with the way the devil works and the way the devil operated. You remember when the devil came on the scene in Genesis chapter 3? And brought the temptation to Adam and Eve and successfully got them to fall. Have you ever thought, stopped to think about it? He didn't come to their minds like he does to us. He had to assume a physical form. He took the body of the serpent. Why? Because before the fall, Ad, uh, Satan had no access to mankind whatsoever. He couldn't whisper to his mind. That's a product of the fall. He had no access 
whatsoever to mankind because mankind, because of his physical form, was the one that had authority. So Satan had to use the body, the physical form, the physical body of the serpent to gain any access to man whatsoever. Well, that's not the way he deals with you and me. Uh, we may look at some people and think the devil's certainly using them. Some are easier to tell than others. But typically, the devil comes to us through our thoughts. Why didn't he do that with Adam and Eve? Because he couldn't. He couldn't. Now, when Jesus comes along, the fall has already taken place, of course, and had for thousands of years. Jesus comes along, and he endures the temptations of the devil, defeats them with the word by quoting the word, speaking the word, which tells us a little bit more about Jesus and his words. Can you imagine the things that came out of Jesus' mouth in his own household before he started his ministry? The knowledge that he has of the, of the law of Moses, the knowledge he has of God's plans. Can you imagine the things that his mother has listened to and heard the truth of Scripture and the character and the nature of God that she's heard throughout his growing years? It's been a, a constant sermon. Jesus didn't all of a sudden just start saying the things that his father gave him after he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. I think that had something to do with Mary telling the servants at the wedding feast in Cana. Whatever he says to you, do it. Jesus knew that his purpose was to come and restore mankind. Restore him how? To rejoin him to God so that he could fulfill his purpose of exercising authority here on the earth according to God's will. You remember in Jesus' ministry, he was asked over and over again by people, have you come to restore the kingdom? They thought that meant to be delivered from Roman rule. They thought the re restoration of the kingdom was about not being slaves or governed or mistreated anymore by the Romans. Jesus did come to restore the kingdom, but it was the kingdom of God that's within. Jesus is restoring man's position of authority. That was his purpose. Not to break the Roman Empire. Like so many were hoping that that was what it was about. He came to reestablish authority. And notice it says that God gave him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man, because he's got a physical body. That's what son of man means. It means one with a physical body. Well, what judgment did he execute? John 12, 47 says, Jesus said himself, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. So executing judgment doesn't mean executing judgment on mankind. Let me show you a scripture in John chapter 16. He's talking about the Holy Ghost. This is the last night of his time with his disciples. Just a couple of hours perhaps before he's betrayed and taken captive and begins the, uh, the sacrificial work on the cross. 
Notice in John chapter 16, we'll start reading in verse 7. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you, it is expedient, beneficial, helpful for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, when was he come? After the resurrection. So he's saying when he has come, after the resurrection, he will reprove the world. That means convince or convict. That means lead them to what is true. He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Notice judgment. That's what Jesus was given authority to execute on the earth because he was the son of man, because he had a physical form. Not because he was the son of God, but because he had a physical form. When he has come, he will reprove the world of of sin and righteousness and of judgment. Then he explains that. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Notice verse 11. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. So if we put that together with John chapter 5, verse 27, the Father has given me authority, he said, to execute judgment because I'm the Son of Man. Execute what judgment? On the prince of this world, who is Satan. It's the same thing that John is saying in different words. First John chapter 3, he said, For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Destroying, loosening, undoing the works of the devil is the execution of judgment that Jesus passed upon Satan. It's the same thing that Paul said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 that Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. It means the same thing. It means Jesus paid the price for sin and spiritual death to break Satan's hold over this earth, to break Satan's hold over the people that God intended to have authority here. Do you understand what I'm saying? God fashioned Jesus a human body so that he could legally carry out God's plan and purpose to destroy spiritual death, sin, sickness, and poverty. Sin, sickness, and poverty. With that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Beginning in verse 5, it says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, Roman soldier, captain of a hundred, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, And I say to this man, go and he goes, and to another come and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the Gentile world. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about the Jews that reject him. 
And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Notice what Jesus identified great faith as. The understanding of authority through the spoken word. The understanding of authority, that's, that's what this guy knew. He had people that he took orders from, and he had people that took orders from him. He said, I understand how authority works. Speak the word only. Now, he's, an, he's identified that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. The only way that I know that he could come to that place is hearing the things that Jesus has done in other places. And somehow or another, he connects the dots. Somehow or another, he takes what he's heard that Jesus has done, the works that he's performed here on the earth. He takes that information and doesn't go so far as to say, I believe you're the Messiah. He might or might not have. But where the healing of his servant was concerned, he understood enough about authority and about Jesus' use of authority to speak out that which reveals that he had, in Jesus' opinion, great faith. Where did he get that from? Back up to the last part of chapter 7. I take a lot of comfort in these scriptures, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. Notice it says in verse 28, after Jesus has taught a good number of things to the, children, to the crowds and the people that were with him. It says, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. The word doctrine means teaching. I want you to notice that the Bible clearly says the people were astonished at his teaching. It doesn't say they were astonished at him. Now, if Jesus did operate on the earth as the Son of God with his heavenly power and glory, that which he had with the Father. If he did operate as the Son of God to prove that he was the Son of God or prove God was his Father, then the doctrine wouldn't have been too important. Just do a miracle everywhere. Say, I'm doing a miracle because I'm the Son of God. Believe it or not. Why was the doctrine important? What was important about the doctrine or why would the people be astonished or amazed at the teaching that he did rather than just grabbing each other and say, do you realize this means this is the Messiah? He's the one. And on a second note, why would Jesus feel the need to do so much teaching? Luke chapter 4, verse 14, where we started, it said, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee, and great fame went out abroad of him in all that region round about. The next verse says, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Why is Jesus teaching? If the miracles are the proof, which we all thought they were, and if Jesus' purpose is to do the miracles so that it proves and identifies that he's the Son of God, why teach? What's the significance of the teaching? These verses tell us. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them, I'm reading from the King James, notice the word one in there. He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The word one is in italics. 
which means the translators added it. Now, apparently, they thought the same thing that the early, uh, the, many of the modern-day churches think, that Jesus did what he did, signs and wonders and miracles to prove that he was the Son of God. Well, if that were the case, then the only thing that would matter is that the people knew that he was the one that had authority. But the word one's not in the original text. It literally reads this way. They were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. As having authority. Well, you could still say, and I understand clearly how the translators felt the need to add the one, the word one in there. If he taught them as having authority, then he's teaching somebody how to have authority. The word as relates to a manner in which something is done. One of the synonyms for this word as, as far as the translation from the Greek to the English is concerned, is the word how. The word having literally means to hold. To hold. To grasp or to hold on to. So what this is saying in the original language is, they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Notice he's teaching that to people, to others. He's teaching them how to hold authority. Maybe that means how to exercise authority. Maybe it means something more than that. But one thing that we can't escape, something that's very clearly identified through these verses, is that Jesus is not the one... He's not saying that he's the only one with authority. Teaching authority was a big part of Jesus' ministry. I wonder if that's what the centurion in chapter 8 got a hold of. I wonder if hearing about these things in Jesus' teaching in this way was what he understood relative to his position in the army. If Jesus is teaching that man has authority, which remember that was God's purpose for putting man on the earth. If Jesus is teaching that man has authority, then that would simply mean, and of necessity would mean, that man can overcome sin because man was given authority on the earth and not the devil. Now, we know the devil has perverted things. We know the devil has changed things up. Part of Jesus' temptation of the devil was when the devil showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, I've got authority over all these. It's been given to me, and I'll give it to you if you'll worship me. Of course, Jesus refused. But we do see that the devil has a certain influence here on the earth. But nowhere does it say that the, that the devil took man's authority. That came as a real surprise to me. I thought, because of the things that I'd heard taught over the years, I thought that the devil took man's authority from him. But that can't be true. Because if the devil took man's authority, why is God saying things in the Old Testament like, I set before your life and death, blessing and cursing, choose which one you want. If the devil has taken man's authority from him, stripped man of his authority then there's no choice. We could look at it and say, well, we want blessing in life. 
If only we could choose for ourselves. But God said again and again and again, you choose what it's going to be. You choose the blessings or the curses. He said, your words will determine what you have. Man never lost his place of authority. He lost his relationship with God. So that now we're subject to the physical elements of this world. And those are the things that we have to overcome. But man never lost his authority. Now somebody might say, yeah, but 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says Satan is the God of this world. It does. And he is. But what does the word world mean? The word used there is not the word that means the earth or the planet. So he's not the God of the earth, the physical earth. Another word that's used for world sometimes is the word eon, which, or I'm sorry, is the word cosmos, which means the world system. That's not the word used here. Satan is not the God of this world system. The word used means period of time. Satan is the God of this age. Well, how does he work? By influencing man to do evil. By influencing man to turn away from God rather than to turn toward him. The same 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says Satan is the God of this world who blinds the minds of them that should believe. Lest they receive the glorious light of the gospel. So Satan has authority on the earth, but the only way he can exercise the authority on the earth for the period of time that he's allowed to operate, the only way he can do that is through deception, influencing man to make wrong choices because man still has authority. Choose this day, blessing or curse, life or death. Man still has authority and man never lost authority. The devil's not big enough to change God's system. No matter what he tells you, he's not big enough to assume control when God gave that authority to man. The only thing he can do is operate through deception to make us use our authority poorly or contrary to God's purpose rather than in line with it. So what does that tell us? To sum up everything that we've talked about, it tells us that Jesus had the character and the nature of God. And that's what he opened up to us. That's what being born again is all about. It's about receiving the life of God in us. Secondly, Jesus was anointed of the Holy Ghost to do signs and wonders and miracles, to show God's love and God's care and God's deliverance from the bondage of the enemy. One last scripture I want to show you, and that's over in James chapter 5. Here's how this relates to us. We have the same life that Jesus has. We have the same life of the Father in us that Jesus had. He's shared with us his righteousness through his sacrifice. So in our spirits, the inward man, the eternal man, we are the same as Jesus 
when he was here on the earth before the cross and after he was raised from the dead. We are identical. We have been remade, reborn in the image and likeness of God. Not similar, but the same life. Well, that means if we're anointed then, or whatever we might be anointed for, will produce the same thing according to God's will that Jesus did when he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. So what are we anointed to do? Because whatever that is, whatever we're anointed to do, we can do in the same fashion as Jesus and have the same results as Jesus. That's why Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14, the works that I do shall you do also. And even greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. What's he saying? He's saying I'm going to take your spiritual death and give you my righteousness. That makes us sons and daughters of God. So from that point, it's just a matter of whatever God anoints us to do. That has to be true, doesn't it? Thank God it is. James chapter 5, verse 14. James writing to the church says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up, and if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. I want you to notice something that James is writing to the church by the Holy Ghost. He identifies that every church is anointed for something. He's identifying that every church is anointed with healing power. Every church is. Now, not every church accepts that. Maybe not every church wants it. Certainly not every church walks in it. But notice what James is saying by the Holy Ghost. He does not single out certain churches for healing. He does not say, if any of you are sick, go to Ephesus. Because this guy, Paul, is getting people healed through handkerchiefs and aprons. He doesn't say, stay away from Corinth. Those people are crazy. No, he indicates very specifically that the elders, which we understand is the church leadership, he's saying the elders of every church are commissioned by God. If this, is, if this is inspired by the Holy Ghost, it has to mean that every church is commissioned by God to heal the sick. It has to mean that. Doesn't it? Is any among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church. What church? Whatever church they're part of. Call for the church leaders and let them pray over them. Now, a lot of people get hung up on the anointing of oil. A lot of people get hung up on the elders. But notice verse 15 says it's the prayer of faith that saves the sick. It's the prayer of faith that heals the sick, not the oil and not the elders. Whatever the elders are able to do is simply because, and specifically because, it's the anointing of God on the church. It's the anointing of God on the church. So what is he saying? He's saying the church, the modern day church, our church, us, is designed to be sons and daughters of God 
which were made through the new birth, who are anointed of the Holy Ghost to bring healing to the family of God. He didn't say we're anointed to feel it, feel the anointing. He didn't say we'd ever have any feelings about it one way or the other. He simply said this is the way God set it up. Is any sick among you? That indicates big or small sickness, doesn't it? Any and all. That means incurable things or minor things. Is any among you sick? Let them call for the elders, the church leaders, and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise them up. He doesn't say the Lord might raise him up. And he even, again, by the Holy Ghost, throws in the answer for somebody that might think, yeah, but I'm sick because I've lived such a terrible life. Or I've done things to displease God. He said the Lord will raise him up through the prayer of faith. And if he's committed sins. If he's committed sins. If he's committed sins. They shall be forgiven him. In other words... James is saying by the Holy Ghost, God will not let your personal failures keep you from receiving the healing that was purchased by the blood of Jesus. Now you might, but God won't. Every church is designed and anointed of God to be a healing center. Or else these scriptures aren't true. That puts us in exactly the same position as Jesus when he was here on the earth. He was a man anointed of God who by the will of God did spectacular works, even miracles. And that's who the church is supposed to be today. Now there are other things that we're anointed to do. There are other things that the Bible identifies that the church should do with the help of the Holy Ghost. But this is a big one. This is a big one. How do we implement that? Seems to me that so many of us have gotten things backwards. Notice it does not say concerning the sick, let the church leadership have healing lines. Now don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with doing Things, however, I, I don't have a problem. I don't have a complaint with how anybody chooses to do things. If they're led of the Lord, I assume everybody's doing the best they know how to do. But that does not say have healing lines. Doesn't mean it's wrong to have them. But I think one of the reasons that we've come to the place that we have is because most of the church world, or many in the church world, hopefully not most, but whatever, many in the church world are looking for people who have special anointings to do the work. I think a second cause for the place that we've gotten ourselves to is because we haven't taught on these scriptures enough for people in the congregation, the laity, to have confidence that this is what God wants done. See where it says, is any sick among you? It's writing to the sick. It's writing to the individual. It's saying you have a personal responsibility here. If you're sick, 
then you have a responsibility. And, and by the way, the words that are used here indicate, according to, to Greek scholars, indicate that James is saying, is any among you beyond doing something for yourself? Certainly reaching out to God in faith on a personal level is the, is the go-to position. But be that as it may, when he says, let them, the sick, call for the elders of the church, that indicates a confidence that the people are supposed to have in the church leadership, doesn't it? Looks that way to me. Looks that way to me that the church should be in a position, should live, should operate in a position where the people have confidence in the leaders. Not confidence in some special anointing they have. Somebody might or might not have that. <clears throat> I've never been given a special anointing by God regarding healing the sick. I spent a lot of time with Brother Hagen and learned specifically about the anointing that he had been given, the special anointing to minister to the sick. <clears throat> and I saw the results vary from place to place depending on the confidence that people had in his claim, Brother Hagin saying that the Lord appeared to him, put the finger of his hands in the palms of each one of Brother Hagin's hands and told him to tell the people that I've appeared to you and anointed you. The ones that believed that got results, miraculous results. The ones that didn't, didn't. I guess what I want to get across to you this morning more than anything else is that God's intent I know man's messed it up we sometimes get in our own way but God's intent is for the church his family to be full of life and full of healing power and the devil's not big enough to stop that if we believe it The devil's not big enough to change that, to alter God's plan, to resist that. Remember what Jesus said, upon the knowledge that he is the son of God, the sacrifice for us all, he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell cannot hold out against it. The picture is the church is moving forward, taking ground, pushing against the devil and the devil is running backwards as fast as he can. That's God's picture of the church. Oh, if only it were our picture of the church. Should be. Bless God, let's make it to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the authority that you've given us in the name of Jesus. The name above every name. We thank you that we've been made righteous by Jesus' blood. We thank you, Father that we are new creations, new species of beings, the same species of being that Jesus was here on the earth, born of the Spirit of God, righteous in your sight, and anointed of the Holy Ghost to do the work that you sent us to do. Father, we pray that there would be such a hunger in each and every one of us 
that we would not quit, that we would not turn back, that we would not relent until we are living proof and evidence that Jesus is risen from the dead. Let it be said of us, even as Jesus said to his disciples, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Father, I thank you for what you've shown me. I thank you for your great plan that's ahead. I believe we're walking in the edge of it. But I also believe, Father, it's going to flow like a rushing river, a rushing mighty river with signs and wonders and healings. I thank you, Father, that as we act on the word, as we become doers of the word, exactly what you said was ours will be ours. We pray that healing would flow like a river and salvation would rise as the tide. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Let's all stand together. Say this after me. I've been given authority in this earth to do the will of God and to perform the work of God. I have been given the name of Jesus to break every bondage, every sickness, every disease in that name to live above the work of the enemy and to live exactly what Jesus provided. Freedom from sin and sickness and poverty. I am free in Jesus' name. I am equipped by the greater one, the mighty Holy Spirit, to pray for others and to see the miracle works of God done. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Folks, this is truth. This is the way it's supposed to be. I think we need to start accepting that. I think we need to start confessing that. I think we need to be settled. No matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like. I believe we need to be settled in the truth of God's power in us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for enduring another donut session. There's something about these scriptures. It just makes my heart leap. Amen. We love you. God, have, have a great day. Come on back tonight and be with us if you can.